Hello, I am Stephen Haber, the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Welcome to our latest installment of the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Today, we will discuss the battle over patents, history and the politics of innovation, a book I edited with Naomi Lamoureux, the Stanley B. Resser Professor of Economics of History at Yale University. We are joined by two contributors to that book, Hoover Research Fellow and Senior Fellow at the Universidad Adolfo Ibanez, Alex Galetovich, and Gerardo Condias, Associate Professor of Science and Technology Studies at UC Davis and former Hoover National Fellow. So first, let me welcome uh, Gerardo uh, and Alex. I'm delighted you're here. Um, I'll say uh, by way of preamble how much I enjoyed working with you guys on the, uh, the three years that we worked on this book. Uh, and I'd like to start out with a sort of an open-ended question um, to give listeners a sense uh, of what the book is about. Um, there has been a debate over the last, let's say, 15 years or so about the value of patents. And one, uh, one view of patents, and I'm going to paint these fairly starkly, is that they're essential for the purpose, for the process of innovation. Uh, and that if we didn't have them, we'd have a lot less innovation because there wouldn't be a property right in ideas. The uh, second view, the alternative view, is that patents are actually an impediment to innovation um, because they create monopolies uh, and thereby discourage um, follow-on um, technologies. Given that background, uh, Alex, why don't we start with you? Um, given that background, uh, could you say some words about what role did patents play in the, in the air, specific area you focused on, which was the history of semiconductors, which for those of us in Silicon Valley is sort of say the history of our backyards. Uh, let, me, let me give you the floor and then I'm gonna uh, ask Con uh, to, uh, to talk about patents and software. Alex. Thanks, Steve. One can, um... The story or the history of the semiconductor industry is, um, is fascinating. And uh, at the same time, it's a continuous development of 70 years, which has more or less the same structure, which is uh, the development or the implication or the playing out of Moore's law, which allows better and better uh, components to be produced and so that ele the electronics gets better and better and can do more and more things with uh, with those uh, with semiconductors and at the same time of course uh, enormous change and creativity which uh, is how semiconductor firms live the day to day i mean they are in a they are in a constant threat uh, tension between threats competitive threats and opportunities to develop new, uh, new technologies. And one can think of the role of patents in two periods. The first period runs from more or less the early 1950s to the late 70s, in which the basics of the technology were, uh, was developed. 
and in which uh, semiconductors were produced essentially by specialist firms who would develop devices which were differentiated and in which patents played an interesting role. It was, to some extent, some firms uh, derived revenues from those patents because they licensed. Licensing is something that emerged in the industry very early on in the 1960s. Uh, but but essentially, but but the, the most important thing perhaps is that patents allowed firms to manage a, an inherent tension in semiconductor firms. Semiconductor firms tend to be very specialized. Uh, they they develop one product, and that's part of the reason why technological progress has been so fast. Is is that new products are developed by startups which are very focused on one innovation. But that puts a very, a very, uh, a very interesting tension which has been uh, stressed, stressed by uh, Gordon Moore of Moore's Law fame, uh, who argues that semiconductor firms always have far more ideas than what they can handle. And the outcome of this is we see that in the history of the industry is that people leave semiconductor firms all the time to start a new venture. Uh, now patents uh, played among their many roles. They played during, especially during the first part of the industry, of the industry uh, until the late 1970s, they played a very interesting role in managing the this tension because you could leave a firm provided that you wouldn't run with the idea that the firm was developing, which was protected by patents. So you're saying so that, that the, the firm held the patent and so you couldn't appropriate the, the firm's technology if you left the firm and that allowed uh, engineers to move from one firm to another fairly seamlessly. Right. Not not only the, not only the technology, but, uh, but the product that they were working on. Mm -hmm. That was very important. Firms were specialized. Specialized. They focused on one uh, on one narrow subset of products, and they would develop those products. And you would leave, and both trade secrets and patents would prevent you from leaving and copying whatever the firm was doing. But most of the time you were free to leave if you would leave to start a new venture doing something else. Uh, one of the fascinating aspects of this is if you look at the history of, of, of the industry, you see uh, rates of total factor productivity, uh, which are uh, unique. I mean, there, there, is, there is no other industry which has produced consistently such rates of total factor productivity, which we economists know is manna from heaven. And partly, and, and, and the mechanics of this, this, of this uh, uh, total factor productivity and free lunch was that people would learn much more than what was useful for any given firm. And they could leave to start a new firm using the new knowledge or some other firm could use your knowledge provided that firm wouldn't copy your product. Okay, let me, let me turn now to, to, uh, to Con. Um, what I thought was fascinating about your chapter in the book on uh, software uh, is that there's now a, a lot of skepticism uh, about whether software can even be patentable, uh, whether it constitutes patentable subject matter. So, 
Um, my prior would have been before reading your chapter that patents played no role uh, in uh, the development of software. Uh, so I wonder if you could sort of uh, enlighten our, uh, our guests, our listeners, as to uh, in the early years of the industry, what role did, uh, did patents actually pay, play in the emerging software industry? Uh, and then I want to sort of create some tension between you and Alex, if I can. Friendly tension, mind you. Uh, so, Colin, uh, the floor is yours. Um, in the early days of the software industry, patents were essential for small firms to start trying to compete with the larger ones. So one of the big uh, episodes in the history of software early on was what's called the bundling of IBM's uh, the software with its hardware. So essentially, uh, IBM and other hardware manufacturers would distribute the software uh, free of charge with the purchase of, or lease or hardware. And so what would happen is that if a small firm was trying to enter the computing industry by developing software products, they would need some way of asserting uh, their dominance over at least the market for the product that they were hoping to release. And so that's what they did with the patents. It would, it would allow them to create these small portions of the industry where they could try to compete with IBM's essentially free products without the fear that IBM would just suddenly start developing uh, programs that perform the same functions or the same algorithms um, and sort of essentially driving out of business even as soon as they arrived. And so early on, patents were sort of this, this rallying cry for these tiny software firms that were basically made up of uh, former hardware manufacturing employees who decided that with a, a notepad and a pencil, they could perhaps enter the industry and make a name for themselves. So I'm now very confused because both you and Alex have been uh, advancing this idea that patents benefited small firms, startups, inventors who were in one firm and left for another firm. Maybe I've got it wrong, but my understanding uh, from much of the literature about patents, at least in the last 15 years, particularly the literature that comes out of law schools, is that what patents do is they grant monopolies. So how can it be that something that grants a, mono a temporary monopoly uh, is actually beneficial to small firms and startups? Because I don't usually think of the words monopoly, small firm and startup all being in the same sentence. So what are the patents doing? if? So either they're not creating monopolies um, or I don't understand what monopolies are. As a matter of fact, they don't create monopolies or most of the time they don't create monopolies. Uh, if we by monopoly, we mean the technical, uh, what an economist means by a monopoly which com who confronts a demand curve and can set the price by fixing the quantity or fix the price and set the quantity. Uh, what actually happens is something different. Most innovations are differentiated products and are a different product that does something different or better than the alternatives. And when you view patents as, as, as such, they are not really, you, you realize that they're not really protecting 
um, monopolies, but they are protecting competitive advantages or what economists would call creating uh, Ricardian rents. You do something better than the average and then you get a rent or you get a remuneration uh, beyond the remuneration that you would get your, uh, your uh, factors of production would get in competitive markets. So actually patents, patents don't, don't create a monopoly, don't create monopolies. And, and moreover, I mean, many, in many cases, firms don't patent because they don't want to reveal what their secret is. And they don't want to give information to other people who can invent around. Uh, so patents, many times what they do actually is that they contribute to the diffusion of the information. And by doing so, they, 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 uh, they help uh, new startups to use technologies that without infringing the competitive advantage of the owner of the patent. So, so the, 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 there is a misconception about patents creating monopolies by the fact that they create exclusivity, but that doesn't mean that this is uh, that this is a monopoly. I have an exclusive right to my home because I'm the owner of my home, uh, but I don't have a monopoly on the in the housing market, right? Uh, that's a Can very useful way to think about it. Uh, Con, please. Oh, I was going to say, I think one of one of the great things about this book is that we we are sort of each of us gravitating away of away from thinking about patents exclusively as monopolies. We're thinking about it as right to exclude others from certain innovations in a way that enables different kinds of market dynamics. So for, for the early software industry, one of the things that was very important was trying to create licensing arrangements. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily fit into sort of a, a, a direct monopoly uh, interpretation of what a patent would give you. And sometimes patents didn't even have necessarily any major commercial value. And they were just um, ways for firms to assert their identity in the industry so that later they could uh, say, well, we have this track record of doing this. Sometimes they have a signaling value more than a commercial one as well. Interesting. So you guys have both mentioned uh, licensing and I'm, I'm struggling with um, that idea. Um, um, the vision, let's say, I have of, um, of patents is, um, and I, I'm channeling, I mean, you guys know me, I'm channeling the, uh, the alternative view of patents here, um, uh, patents as monopolies. The vision I tend to have is the, um, the vision that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, where uh, a firm gets a patent on a particular molecule, uh, and then uh, prevents um, uh, alternatives to that uh, particular molecule from being, you know, or prevents copies of that particular molecule to enter the market. Um, and licensing does not necessarily enter into um, the, uh, uh, the way that industry works. In the in both in in sort of the history of Silicon Valley and in semiconductors and the history of software, I think you guys are suggesting that that licensing is actually a key and that so now imagine had there not been patents, could you have had licensing? What would have been the structure of these industries? And we all know in Silicon Valley there's a million small firms. They seem to crop up almost every morning. Um, 
you only have to go to the local Starbucks to hear, you know, three three people talking about the, what they're going to launch. Um, I like to joke sometimes is, you know, I'm going to develop an app that's going to help you find chocolate ice cream as if, you know, that we don't know what that is already um, or where to get it. Um, so I'm I'm uh, I'm wondering uh, what what things would have looked like in the absence of of licensing had there not been patents. Well, you only have to go to the second part of the uh, or second period of the in of the semiconductor industry, which starts in the early '80s with uh, fundamental uh, fundamental developments in the um, in in the technology to uh, design circuits until the uh, until the late 1970s or mid 1970s. Uh, you would need to draw a new circuit and a new uh, and a new semiconductor device. So you made a drawing which was made by hand. By that time, drawings were getting so uh, so complicated that people uh, feared that the industry wouldn't uh, that the industry would uh, would stop in its tracks because it it, it would not be able to uh, to deal with this complexity. But then uh, two computer scientists. Uh, invented invented a, a new language in which you could write down circuits uh, more or less like programs. And that basically what that did was to create uh, computer science and, and chip design as a new discipline. It used to be that chips would be designed by the ones who manufactured them. So chemical engineers are very prominent in the early stages of the industry because they would, it, it was necessary to, manuf- to, to produce a, a chip. You would need to, uh, you would need to uh, be able to produce it. And for that, you, need, you had to be a chemical engineer. So patents uh, allowed specialization uh, and especially, well, from the early uh, years of the industry, but especially after the 1980s. At the same time, you see a trend in the industry in which uh, uh, fabs or, or semiconductor plants were getting bigger and bigger. They would be getting more and more efficient and be able to do better and better chips, more and more complex chips, smaller and smaller uh, uh, transistors, but at the same time, plants would be going bigger and bigger. So essentially, without what happened in the industry is that design became specialized. So, so you have zillions today, the, mo- the standard model today is, is a semiconductor firm that doesn't own a, f- a fabrication plants. The industry is very, very concentrated at the fabrication part. Uh, but you have millions, or not millions probably, but thousands of different design firms and semiconductor firms that design semiconductors. Had it not been by patents, they couldn't have essentially traded those designs. They couldn't have had credible co- uh, commitments of manufacturers not to copy them. And what we would have seen is probably a concentrated industry. And if we work backwards and go to the early 50s and 60s, then probably without patents, we would have seen the same, uh, the same structure emerging, which is that semiconductors and semiconductor technology would have been developed by large vertically integrated firms. Go ahead, Con. would you like to uh, add to that? 
Yes, in, in terms of thinking about what the industry structure would have looked like without patents and with, uh, without licensing, I think the clearest example is what happened in the 1960s with IBM. IBM in the 1960s became the country's most vocal opponent of software patenting in all of its forms. They, um, they lobbied Congress, they lobbied all sorts of government organizations and launched educational campaigns essentially designed to say that software is a kind of invention that falls outside of the realm of patent law entirely. Of course, that's, that's very shocking given what IBM is like today. But at the time, the reason for this was that IBM, um, because it was bundling its products and an earlier consent decree had limited what it could do with its own uh, patents, IBM was essentially hoping to tear down intellectual property protections for software to completely leave, uh, level out the playing field in the legal terms so that its own market dominance could, uh, uh, could be perpetuated. And so this world that IBM envisioned was one in which software would essentially continue to remain free, where it would no longer be positioned necessarily as that which makes the system valuable. And that way, hardware would be uh, the primary source of value uh, in, in the computing systems that it sold. And so this, this was a world in which uh, licensing would be almost entirely non-existent for software, but it would have also been one in which competitors would not be able to enter the industry at all because IBM could just steamroll uh, whatever new innovations they would try to make and sell. So uh, this is really fascinating. And I, I wonder if we could stay with this for a few minutes because what you're suggesting, Khan, uh, uh, is that in software, um, patents were attacked by the dominant player in the industry. The biggest firm was anti-patent. And Alex, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying something somewhat similar about Silicon Valley, which is that the biggest firms were not necessarily the ones who favored a, a, a strong patent system um, and who don't favor it necessarily today. So I wonder if you guys could talk a bit about how it is, you know, so the book's called The Battle Over Patents. Um, and so it implies that there's a, there's a, there's a competition or a struggle uh, taking place, a battle taking place. So could in each of these industries or in the uh, uh, in innovation uh, economy broadly defined, could, could you guys help enlighten us as to what the sort of generally speaking, what the battle lines look like, uh, which which firms tend to be pro-patent, which firms tend to be anti-patent, and how did this come to be then a sort of a, how did an intellectual debate uh, emerge out of a fight, which is essentially about what you're suggesting, intra-industry fights over the rents from innovation. How did this even become an academic uh, discussion? The, the conflict is one can, one can, uh... One can describe it as, as follows. There, there are uh, specialized firms that essentially develop a technology and they don't manufacture 
they don't bring this technology to market because they uh, they land they license essentially that technology, and that creates uh, a temptation from manufacturers, of course, and and the bigger the more uh, the more vocal they are. Uh, to claim that they are not really infringing the patents, or that the patents that the patents are uh, are patenting uh, really uh, useless stuff that everybody knows anyway, and shouldn't have been patented in the first place. And we can see that, and I, and I think the book uh, the book touches upon that in several chapters, in which uh, in which uh, along the history this debate has been more or less the same in the same terms. Uh, probably, probably what's what's new in the last in the last 20, uh, 20 or thirty years is that <coughs> um, is that big firms have engaged regulators to uh, in order for them to weaken the negotiations for royalties. Regulators have been in, uh, has have been involved in the in the patent debate for uh, for at least in the, since the 1930s, as one of the chapters of the book by Jonathan Barnett uh, clearly explains. Uh, it turned out that they weakened patents for a long period, but those patents tended to be owned by large firms, which didn't care much because they could appropriate the rents of innovation through other means. Uh, the real, a real battle of, of, over patents involving regulators come, comes from the last 20 years in which uh, essentially uh, manufacturers have tried to weaken the patents, particularly in, uh, in phones, by arguing that this intellectual property isn't, uh, isn't, uh, isn't that valuable and that uh, innovators are exploiting monopoly power with those innovations. And so the battle is, on the one hand, you have specialized firms that develop technologies who like patents. Some of them, some of them are quite large, but not as large, of course, as the manufacturers. And on the other hand, you have manufacturers who would like to have weaker patent, uh, patents because on the one hand, they would, pay they would pay less for a while. And that disadvantages smaller firms that can compete them and, and, uh, and develop better technologies that, uh, that erode their rents. In the software industry, um, so yes, early on, there was this battle between uh, the hardware manufacturers led by IBM and the smaller firms like Applied Data Research and several others that were starting to try to make inroads in the industry and trying to compete with IBM and, and the other com companies. But these battle lines sort of started to shift. And the, the easiest way I think of thinking about this is not by focusing on the computing industry itself, but by realizing that over the years, say by the 70s and definitely by the 80s, uh, patents started to become valuable in any kind of industry where sort of exclusive rights over some kind of automation uh, could be a valuable competitive advantage. And so when you following on the themes uh, that, that you were just discussing, you start, we start thinking about manufacturing and about telecommunications and about all these other companies that start realizing that there is a legitimate commercial and technical interest in securing software patents on their own. But along the way, what started to happen was that 
the very idea of what software is in the software patents started to become very, very blurry. For uh, mathematicians, for example, the software would be a collection of algorithms, but for an electrical engineer, it might be a specific way of wiring a machine. And for industrial research laboratories, there was sort of this hybrid technology that they were just developing so that they could get somewhere else, perhaps a new way of controlling a telephone system or something like that. And so these conceptual tensions started to uh, develop that eventually attracted academic interest. And then this goes deep to your question of how, how did an academic debate start to form? But this academic interest started to explode um, in the 1970s as devices became smaller and cheaper and more kinds of users started to become involved in the computing industry itself. And so eventually we end up with uh, the, the hobby cultures of Silicon Valley, where um, the critique of software patents stops being a conceptual one about sort of whether or not we are claiming ownership of something that should or shouldn't fall within uh, section 101. And it becomes more about control, about corporate control over user interfaces and the degree to which uh, commercial actors should or shouldn't be allowed to, con uh, to, to, to assert ownership over the systems that enable people to communicate freely uh, with a machine. And so that really started to build up a lot of, uh, of the scholarly tensions that continue with us to, these, to this day, sort of these uh, social and ideological and cultural critiques of what the consequences of ownership are. So I want to, this has really been fascinating, but I'm mindful of the time and I want to shift us a little bit because um, one of the things that the Hoover Book Club is designed to do is not just talk about the substance of uh, research and its policy uh, implications, but also give listeners and viewers a sense of how research happens. Um, so I was wondering um, if, you know, I mentioned that the, at, the, at the beginning that this took us three years of collaboration to produce uh, this book, but of course, there was a lot more than that b before uh, I even reached out and invited you guys uh, to be part of this. That is where Naomi Lamro and I said, "Hey, well, let's get Alex Galetovich and uh, Kohn and uh, and others uh, together." So there had been a lot of years of research uh, prior to even beginning to work on the book. So by way of getting across the idea of what it, what research consists of, I wonder if I could ask you the following question. What did you discover, as is in the scientific sense of the term, um, that is, what did you not know before that was a surprise in the process of doing research? What came to you uh, as, a, as something of a shock uh, as you were doing research and how did it happen that that uh, discovery emerged? I discovered that there is an untapped source of information in the history of patents, and that is the archives 
of the patent office that are held in Kansas City by the National Archives. So one of the things that I did, especially for this chapter, was that I went to the National Archives and actually was able to study all the correspondence between inventors and patent officials. And I could even trace the, the, the colored pencil lines that patent officials made as they read a patent alongside uh, the images for it. Um, one surprising conclusion that this led to was what the chapter that I wrote is about, which is that um, pro not programmers, but engineers in the 1950s started to secure patent protections for computer programs indirectly by patenting a machine that worked in accordance with it. And this would allow them to bypass all sorts of uh, legal doctrines that would have prevented them to patent, for example, an algorithm, but there was sort of this intrinsic physicality to what a program was that became essential to the early techniques uh, for patent drafting and computer programming. I, I, let, me, let me follow on this because you mentioned going to an archive in Kansas City. Um, what, how, how long uh, did it how many documents are we talking about? How long did it take you? Was this a, you know, a weekend of work, a week of work, uh, an afternoon? How, how long did, you, did it take to sort of read through all these patent applications and correspondence? I moved to Kansas City for a year and went there every weekday. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for, uh, they're called the file wrappers. And at the beginning of every week, I would speak with the archivist and give him a list of all the patents that I was hoping to examine that week. And then uh, he would bring up these enormous boxes where these thick, thick folders were contained and each folder was a file wrapper. I would spend the first half of that week uh, going through the patents quickly to assess prior art and see if I could actually start finding connections to other patents. So I would keep a list, a running list of potential patents that I could examine later on. And then that was in the Mondays and Tuesdays. And then Thursdays and Fridays, um, I would spend it comparing patents with uh, sort of the court records, because they also happen to be uh, held at the same archives. So I would spend the, comparing my notes from the first three days with the, the trends that I was noticing in the court records that were also there. So it took about a year of living with the patents. Wow. Um, Alex? Yeah, when, one of the, let, let, me, let, me, let me tell about one particular thing that fascinated me uh, that I could understand by doing this research. And then uh, one aspect, which was, is a bit broader about the economics of innovation. One of the fascinating things I, th I thought about the, uh, the uh, among the many things that are fascinating in the semiconductor industry is this, uh, that you simultaneously, it's like you having your cake and you can eat it. Uh, because it seems that you had you had all these uh, semiconductor firms driven by the expectation of profit, and at the same time you had an enormous rate of creation of knowledge, most of which wasn't used by these firms and became part of the general knowledge of Silicon Valley and beyond. Uh, 
there is a 1982 uh, paper, small, uh, short paper by uh, Bob Noyce, one of the founders of, of Intel and one of the founders of, uh, of Fairchild, which is a legendary, legendary firm in Silicon Valley, uh, who argues that uh, all the all the all the industry cannot be understood without this cross uh, cross um, exchange of information among semiconductor firms, and yet you have that, and yet you have that uh, that firms were driven by profits that they could appropriate and make, and uh, and to me it was fascinating to realize that patents were at the same time allowing one and the other uh, because they were solving what has been uh, pointed out in the literature, uh, widely in the literature, which is that uh, the free riding problem is, is, uh, is inherent to markets in which you're creating knowledge and information. Second thing is, is, is which I, found, uh, I find fascinating and I think uh, going into an industry and, and looking how this industry develops and how the equilibrium of this industry emerge and evolves over time is that you realize that, the, that we economists have some ways of looking at innovation which probably are, uh, which could be improved. Uh, it's, it's to me, it's rather ironic that uh, in the same paper by Ken Arrow, which has influenced the profession so much, you can see the uh, treatment of innovation as a monopoly, which has uh, essentially, uh, essentially determined how economists think about uh, innovation. And at the same time, in the same paper, Arrow, uh, Arrow points out to what is called the Arrow paradox, which is that it's very difficult to trade in information because if you reveal the information, then uh, whomever you're trying to sell the information to already knows it, and so uh, won't, won't be willing to pay for that, right? And, and then you go to the, uh, to, the, um, to the semiconductor industry, and you see that patents, more or less, solve the arrow paradox. And one of the hallmarks of the industry is that in the early days, uh, of course today it's, it's so as well, but, but especially in the early days, the industry realized that they would have to uh, explain how the, the how the technology worked in order to convince uh, manufacturers and, and uh, system companies to adopt the new technology, which was uh, challenging the old technology of uh, vacuum tubes. And you have that here patents, uh, patents played a, a big role because you could go into a trade co conference and advertise your technology and tell how that technology worked because you had a patent protection of it. And so you would, you would solve the arrow uh, information paradox. Uh, and so I think, I think uh, what one of, one of the things I learned is that uh, there is a lot of fascinating insights to be gained by changing a bit the emphasis from monopolies to all these other things that patents do. So I'll stay with this for a minute um, because this is, I, I think, very deep in terms of both of what you've, you've sort of raised, very deep in terms of what the academic enterprise uh, is. 
uh, and how knowledge advances. Um, so you both hinted at other things that patents do. Um, and, but I, would I be incorrect in saying that we could boil all of the things that patents do is uh, an outcome of the fact that a patent is a property right. And like any property right allows there to be gains from trade and specialization. And that um, the uh, battle over patents is as much a battle, one can think, see it as a battle at two levels. At one level, the battle over patents is a battle about the rents in any industry. It's an intra-industry fight over who is going to earn the producer, which firms will earn the producer rents that come from um, the product. Um, and it just happens to be the case that the firm that's at the end of the production chain, let's say in phones, uh, it's the manufacturers, uh, they're receiving the uh, payments from consumers. And so now firms that are the innovators that are further upstream that hold the patents have to battle with the, uh, with the firms that have received the, um, uh, re received the payments directly from consumers. And it's inherent, it's an inherent tension in this and many other industries uh, is that there's a production chain or a supply chain and people are gonna battle over the surplus um, uh, depending where you are in the production chain. There's another battle and it's an intellectual battle. Uh, it's not over money, uh, uh, at least not directly. It's, it's over um, how to think about things. And that battle is a battle about, well, what is it exactly that patents do? And so there's sort of two views out there. One is that a patent grants a monopoly and that we're willing to live with that monopoly uh, because um, without it, there would be uh, no incentive for anybody to innovate. The other view, which you guys seem to be articulating is that no, the patent's a property right and it allows for trade. Um, most of, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, most of, as I understood the, the developments of uh, in economic theory in the post-war period, tended to favor the view that uh, property rights and specialization were good things. And this is why we have active markets uh, in the United States and elsewhere and all kinds of uh, products uh, and services. And a tremendous specialization in almost any uh, industry um, where uh, there's complicated, as we're learning today, complicated supply chains that are made possible by all of the property rights that allow everybody in the supply chain to make a claim on uh, the surplus at the end of the chain. So that's one view. And then there's other view is, oh no, there's these, there were you know, patents for monopolies. How is it that in the sort of advances in economic theory, we cleaved off patents as monopolies and, 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 and thought of them as monopolies and as to be something to be studied within monopoly theory, rather than thought about them more generally like any other property right? Do we have a, as an intellectual matter, do we have a sense of how this emerged and why it emerged the way it did? 
That's a very good question. Um, I think the fundamentally uh, insight that a patent can lead to can lead to a monopoly or can be associated with a monopoly to be more precise is is right. I mean there can be the the both can come together. Uh, at the same time, it's much more easier uh, to model uh, or write models with a monopoly than to write models with the idea that specialization works. That's a sort of truth that we take as self-evident, but uh, it doesn't lead to many, uh, necessarily to many uneasy, uh, nice models. And I think patents as monopolies uh, lend, it, lend themselves to modeling. You can model them as monopolies, as oligopolies, and so on. And so it's natural that, that the profession uh, ex exploited that, that vein in, in, in to do research. My impression is that uh, at some point, of course, uh, the, the, uh, we, we forgot to ask what else do patents do? And maybe the things they do are more important than just uh, create monopolies and they are less prevalent. There should be uh, this comfort in thinking that patents create monopolies. One thinks that um, uh, every year there are about 300,000 patents issued. And uh, so we would have 300,000 monopolies, maybe fewer, fewer of them because some patents never get anywhere. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's hard to, to reconcile. And monopolies, monopolies are very damaging. So if we would have a world full of monopolies, we would figure figure that out. And I think the profession should should take a, a fresh look at patents and 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 explore all the possibilities that uh, that that emerge to, for doing uh, profitable research. Uh, if you if you accept that patents do different uh, a different thing, and then most of the time they come they don't come associated with monopoly. Well, let me, let me, can I take a minute here and, and, um, uh, and reflect on what you said, and then I want to invite uh, Colin to sort of to jump in. Um, you've drawn a distinction about monopoly that I think is important, and I think that for non-economists, uh, um, non let me see if I can explain what a, what, an, what a monopoly is, at least is defined in any economics textbook actually is. It doesn't mean a big firm. It means a firm that's able to constrain output in order to raise price. One could in fact have a local monopoly, uh, a not very big firm, but uh, because of let's say transportation costs, it has a monopoly in a local area. A classic example is in the asphalt industry or cement, the cement industry or sand and gravel, where because it's expensive to transport this stuff, um, you tend to get one firm that serves, let's say, an entire county or set of counties, and it exercises a local monopoly. Um, the, um, those of us, anybody who's ever been to a baseball game or a movie theater has experienced monopoly pricing. Uh, you know, a $20 bucket of popcorn and a $10 uh, soda is an you, you're experiencing uh, the uh, what monopoly pricing looks like because you cannot bring your own popcorn maker into the movie theater or ballpark and you can't bring your own soda machine 
into the uh, into the movie theater or ballpark, and you certainly can't grill hot dogs uh, in the stands. Uh, uh, security would escort you to the door, and so we because there are no substitutes, we get we get this experience of monopoly. And what if I understand what you're saying, Alex, that it was a sort of what I, we might call a law of the conservation of energy of scholars that allowed us to take that model and apply it to patents because as a matter of the math of writing down a model of how things work, it was just easier to work from a monopoly than to work from a competitive market because it the modeling, the math becomes much more difficult and intractable. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a paradox that most patents probably I'm, I'm, I haven't done the research for that and and, quant, and uh, quantify this, but I would I would guess that most of the patents are to protect substitutes of something, and that's the driving force beyond, behind patenting, not to create monopolies, but to create new substitutes that don't doesn't that don't infringe on existing. Uh, technologies to solve a particular problem. Interesting. Colin, I know you wanted to jump in. I do, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that the math angle is tempting, but I, I'm not an economic historian. And so I don't actually have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about whether the math is more tractable if I think of this as a monopoly or not. And instead, the view of patenting that I've developed is more about what kinds of incentives can developers and inventors and innovators uh, be looking for at a certain time? And when that these incentives are sometimes commercial and sometimes they are, as, as I mentioned earlier, about signaling to their existence and their entry into market. Sometimes these incentives are simply symbolic. They just want to assert that their company exists. And so, this view of a patent as a monopoly, there's, of course, a historical reason to, to jump into it. There's a statue of monopolies. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the connection between the two words is very, very old. But we can ask different questions now. We don't have to keep, at least when we're thinking archivally and qualitatively and, 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 and narratively, we don't have to keep assuming that a patent is a monopoly because we have plentiful evidence that it isn't. Uh, necessarily so. And that's, I think, one of the great things about this book, that it's sort of reminding us there are many different ways in which patents become valuable and in which patents become important. So yeah, let me uh, just use a visual aid here, I think, to make the, the point that you just made and that Alex made, which is, okay, so here's a smartphone. Uh, and uh, a smartphone has literally dozens of manu dozens of technology companies in uh develop the patents that are inside this phone. Most of them, most of those patents are not held by the manufacturer of this phone. Uh, they're developed by lots of other companies. And if each one, if I'm understanding what you guys are saying, if each one of those upstream firms um, held a monopoly, if the patents granted those firms monopolies, then the price of this phone, this phone should be priced like a hot dog at a baseball game. Um, <laughs> excuse me? And worse. And worse. <laughs> yes, yeah. right, because there would only be one monopolist at the baseball game. 
Right. Whereas you would have 30 so or so monopolies exercising uh, a monopoly over the production of this. And one test of the proposition would be to ask, well, how are uh, smartphones priced? Uh, is there any evidence that anybody is earning monopoly rents? Um, and so it becomes an empirical question, um, susceptible to tests against evidence. And uh, I won't, uh, I don't want to have a spoiler alert, um, but for those who read the introduction to uh, the battle uh, over patents, you'll find a discussion of the empirical literature and actually what is the value that is the, the, the not the val not the inherent value, um, but what is the, um, the value that the manufacturer, the technology development companies, um, how much are they actually earning in, um, in royalties from a smartphone? Uh, and the number I think will surprise many of the listeners uh, to this, um, to this uh, book club presentation. Let me, we have a few minutes left and I'm going to do something that's perhaps a bit unorthodox uh, in the format uh, of these, which is to ask Alex and Cohn whether they have questions for each other or a question for me. So to really open this up and um, give a sense of not just where I'm asking questions and you're coming up with answers, but where we're asking each other uh, questions. And so let me throw that open as a last round uh, before we cut off. So I have a question for Con. Um, what new things do you think can come out of exploiting these archives? You. You mentioned. I mean, you have. You must have seen lots of things that you couldn't work on, right? These archives became a surprising source of corporate history information. Uh, it turns out that uh, companies would fi would file internal documentation to justify certain points, and so whenever, uh, for example, with IBM. Uh, which is a company that's it's, it's notoriously difficult to get into its own corporate archives. I was able to trace certain technological and ideological and, and commercial trends in IBM's history by following their records as preserved in the National Archives. And those that, so this way, even though it's not going to be a, a completely full picture of IBM's thinking, I was able to generate glimpses of how its managers and executives thought about patents um, by following these uh, legal trails that have never been digitized. Uh, some of them had never even been open. I would be opening letters that they would be sending to each other. And that, that, was, that was absolutely fabulous. So it's, it's sort of new ways of investigating how corporations that are closed to outsiders, uh, how they work on the inside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, for you, a question is, um, how do you think about the development of new kinds of intellectual property protections altogether in the semiconductor industry? Because that has been a recurring theme, sort of looking for new forms of IP or IP-like protections that go beyond patents and copyrights and trade secrets. How, how do you trace that history? Well, um, there is an instance of a new property right created by Congress, which was the um, 
I don't remember exactly the name, but it was a uh, it protected directly designs, but it didn't it didn't fly because it it, it was uh, it was introduced in the 1980s because uh, semiconductor firms were very worried about uh, about foreign firms copying the designs and uh, making the chips cheaper and better, and so uh, the uh, the um, they passed, they passed a, a law that, that protected designs, but it was actually never used. I think, I think more broadly, this is a testimony to the flexibility of the intellectual property of the, of, the, of the intellectual property landscape that we have available, not only patents, but also trade secrets and non-disclosure agreements and so on, which is a very complex web, which uh, which firms use as complements and not as substitutes. And, and I think, and, and I, my, my guess would be that you will see not necessarily uh, new types of intellectual property, but you will see lots of uses of intellectual property, which are, which are novel. Well, this is great. I, I realize that the uh, hour is upon us. And so I want to thank uh, both Alex Galetovich and Gerardo Con Diaz uh, for their time uh, and for joining us today uh, at this installment of the Hoover Book Club. And uh, I want to uh, uh, point uh, people to uh, the battle over patents, uh, history and the politics of innovation, uh, which you can find both at your local bookseller and, uh, of course, from uh, online uh, book retailers. Um, thank you both very, very much. And uh, we look forward to uh, the next installment uh, of the Hoover Book Club. Thank you. Thank you.